Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 207th video cast, 197th podcast for the week ending October 5th, 2023. Coming to you live from Sintra, Portugal, at the Peña Loga Longa uh, Rich Resort, and a lot to cover today. We'll quickly go through some pictures, get you guys up to speed, but a uh, lot been going on in the markets, and we've got a ton of great stuff to go through and get everyone's thinking straight here because opportunity abounds. Uh, first, my buddies Matt and Joe. We went to the Devils Rangers before I got on the plane last Thursday. And uh, of course, the Devils won. There you go. Uh, they were both Ranger fans. Uh, this is in Lisbon. We had uh, new skippers in town. That was on Saturday uh, in Lisbon as well. There's that monument. Uh, we'll just run through these quickly. Another monument, you know what you do on uh, these vacations with kids, more monuments, yada, yada, fun time. Uh, this is, um, let's see, then we did, that was more of that. This was actually an Estoril. That's the Hotel Palacio you may recognize from the James Bond movies. Uh, pretty exciting stuff. And then... We had, uh, that's Estoril, the beach. That is land that I bought a few years ago in uh, Santa Barbara de Nash. That is the soccer stadium. This is five acres. It overlooks the ocean. Uh, you can see it. It's got a great view because it's elevated. And this is right near Quinta de, Lo, uh, Quinta de Lo Lago, where we stayed, which is unbelievable. I'll tell you more about that. Uh, working on developing there. Uh, that's a little better view, actually. Um, and uh, that's that. So it's been a busy week. Then now we're in Sintra, went to the castle today. Um, and then uh, that was lunch. That was uh, the course, Peña Longa. I will say the course in Sintra, that's beautiful, that's right by the green, uh, is not in, as beautiful as the Quinta de Lago in Algarve is something like I've never seen before. Um, if you get a chance to play the South course, it is unreal, you know, whether it's the CEO of Ryanair, it's the... Um, here we go. Here we go. Uh, it's the it's you know Madonna. It's uh, etc. There's not one house. Just when you think you're successful, there's not one house on the course that has uh, that's less than you know 10 million uh, euros. This is my mom with my brother Joe. He's got a house on the beach in Faro. Uh, this is the uh, ocean course south at Quinta. De Lago, where we stayed, Hotel Tinta, Quinta de Lago in Algarve. Um, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, this course, um, the South Course, you got to check out when you're there. That was some of the caves. We did some kayaking as well, and uh, which was fun through the caves. That's my mom with. Um, we've got to go to a royal wedding this weekend, so she's going to watch the kids. We got sweets so she can which is awesome. They're spending time together. Um, so I just wanted to quickly run through some of these and then get you guys up to speed on the market. So I think we got them all. 
great stuff. Want to thank um, Taylor Clothier, Connor Hickey, Haley Marks, and Julie Hyman and Josh Lipton for having me on Yahoo Finance. I went through this, uh, nothing's changed in the overview. So we're gonna listen to this quick overview briefly. Uh, and then we're gonna get down to some, some charts and some indicators I'm looking at that really point to an imminent inflection point here. So take a listen. And third quarter earnings season is right around the corner. Our next guest says the key is to keep your expectations low. Thomas Hayes, Great Hill Capital Chairman and Managing Member joins us now. So Thomas, let's start with September. We know it is typically not a good one for the bulls, and this, this year it's proven no different. We're down about, the SPX is down about 4%, more than 4%. You expect that, Thomas, to carry into October? Well, Josh, thanks for having me. Uh, I think right now we kind of have had a washout, and to your point, the secret to happiness in life is low expectations, and that's exactly what we have in this information vacuum going into earnings season. As a matter of fact, uh, earnings estimates for this quarter are negative uh, 20 basis points, two-tenths of 1%. And what we've seen for the last few quarters is that uh, estimates have been too pessimistic by three full percentage points. So if you knew uh, coming into earnings season that earnings could be up three or 3.2% 3 uh, uh, by the end of the earnings season, would you want to be short? And we've just come off of speaking to seasonality, the worst 10 days of the year is September 16th to September 26th. So we're starting to pull through and I think we're gonna see bluer skies ahead. Um, what about the sort of backdrop though? You know, we've been talking, um, Tom, a lot about the shutdown, the strike, uh, you know, the, the sort of now delayed impact of interest rate increases on things like housing. Do you think that once earnings season starts, People pay less attention to all that stuff and really focus on earnings. Yeah, I think I think that's going to be the shift. Uh, all the negative news is taking up the headlines. If we look at the shutdown, for instance, the longest shutdown we've ever had was 2018 to 2019, which was 35 days. And the S&P 500 was actually up 9.4%. When we had the shutdown uh, in uh, 2011, it actually created a bid in bonds, meaning bonds went up and yields came down. So maybe we do need to shut down for a few days just to get that 10-year yield back below Oh, no, don't say it. Don't say that. <laughs> uh, but I will say one thing. We, we did look back at yields since 1960, and, and really the market's gone a little sideways once the 10-year yield went above 4.5%. And what we saw was that uh, there have been like 11 instances since 1960 when you had a quote-unquote breakout in yields where people thought it was just going to keep going higher, and those breakouts turned out to be fakeouts. And no one's kind of considering that right now, but I think as you get closer to year-end, you're going to see a tremendous amount of pension demand with long-dated liabilities step into the market and actually create tremendous demand for the 10-year yield for the long end of the curve. Uh, which could put a cap and, and bring those yields down, which would help a lot of the sectors that have been beaten up uh, by higher rates, namely housing, uh, namely REITs, namely utilities, uh, any interest rate uh, sensitive sectors, and even banks to a lesser extent, because while everyone's focused on the re-steepening of the curve, what they should be focused on is the mark to markets, which is what hit the, the small re smaller regional banks, and there may, may be some opportunity there into year end. 
Yeah, Thomas, so let's talk about opportunity. Given, given that backdrop, where, where do you see opportunity right now? Names, sectors, what do you like? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, as it relates to the 10-year, uh, hedge funds are the most short they've been since the, 10, since the 2018 lows. They're the most short that they've been. So we think uh, we are gonna see a recovery there. We like actually two industrial stocks uh, which are which have been beat down since their 2021 and 2022 peaks. Both are down. One's down 67%. One's down 80%. The first one is Stanley Black and Decker, and this sounds like a boring business. It kind of is, and that's a good thing as far as we're concerned. 85% uh, of their business is tools. Think Dewalt. Think Stanley. Think uh, Craftsman. And 15% is industrial, which is going to benefit from the Inflation Reduction Act as hundreds of billions of dollars come into the market over the next few years. Uh, when you think construction, you think tools and they kind of control the market. What has happened, like many of these companies, is they overordered because they couldn't get parts, so they just put in a lot of orders, they built up those inventories, and they overhired. And they're working through both of those issues. Uh, they've taken down inventories by 200 million, they're gonna take them down by 750 million to a billion by the end of the year. And they've taken out a tremendous amount of cost. They've already taken out 430 million in cost. They're expected to take out uh, over uh, 2 billion in cost by 2025. Now, why does that matter? Josh, that's $13 a share in cost. And when the stock was trading at $209, they were earning $10.85. So if you think about normalized earnings plus the cost reductions, you could have a stock earning $15 uh, and whether you put a peak or trough multiple on, uh, that, that could be a double over the next 12 to 36 months. So, so we think there's tremendous opportunity uh, in Stanley Black & Decker as they recover. Uh, the other one you like, Generac, um, has been one, man, that one has been beat up quite a bit. Recently had a recovery, I believe it was yesterday, after the company basically said things are not going to get worse. They didn't cut their forecast. They just reaffirmed their forecast. But it, too, has yeah. seen these really uneven sales trends. Um, so normalization, those people have bet on normalization, whatever industry you've been talking about, it's been tougher um, than many had expected. Do you think that Generac's finally going to normalize here? Yeah, I think it's overshot. I mean, the stock is down 80% off its uh, 2022 peak. So I think that it's priced in kind of a worst case scenario. This is the Kleenex of home standby generators. When you're gonna buy a generator, you say, I'm gonna buy a Generac. And with the electrification, what we're seeing is greater fragility uh, in, the, in the electric grid, uh, more outages, more unusual weather circumstances. And what's interesting about their business is the more penetrated a state becomes, the more people that have them, the higher the growth rate. Most people would say, well, it gets saturated. Well, in the states that actually exceed 10% penetration, their growth rates go through the roof because basically what happens is <laughs> you get a storm or you get a power outage and you realize you're the only one on your block with candles and you say, that's never gonna happen to me again. So the more people that have it, the more, more people that want it. Right now, uh, uh, throughout the United States in homes over 150,000, they only have 6% penetration and every 1% increase in penetration is a $3 billion market opportunity. And that doesn't even include the power walls, which is 10% of their business, their battery uh, storage, their clean energy, their solar. They're getting into EV charging and their commercial and industrial business is growing like a weed, 
with the telco 5G build out, they need redundancy and they need power backup. So, you know, this stock uh, historically trades at about a 29 times PE multiple. It's currently trading at a 14 times PE multiple. So we think there's a tremendous opportunity for upside. And we think also this stock could be a double over the next 12 to 36 months. So, so we like these opportunities. We shall see. Thomas Hayes, Great Hill Capital Chairman and Managing Member. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we're back. So that's kind of the high level overview, no change. Uh, this one we're gonna get to in just a minute because I wanna talk about rates. And we talked a lot about rates. I was invited on this um, Inside Alternatives. There were three hedge fund managers interviewed by the guy who runs Financial Advisor Magazine. But it was Debbie Olson who, from The Money Show who was part of this event that invited me on. So thank you to Debbie. We're going to listen to that one in just a second because I want to get to some meat and context before we do that. I want to thank Diane Bartz and Samritha A for including me in their Reuters article this week, as well as Ankika Biswas and Shashwat Chauhan as well. But at the end of the day, uh, everything relies on the rates. Okay, so. Um, this chart is the key to the market, the TLT. And it bottomed two days ago. It's been choppy. Uh, and if this can hold, and the key catalyst, you know, we're going to talk a lot about it in this interview that you're going to listen to in just a little bit. But I think when I look at the oversold nature of the market and individual factors I look at, uh, we're near an inflection. I'm saying, what, what could be the catalyst? Well, it could be Bank of Japan intervention like we saw last October uh, defending the, the uh, yen, but it could also be the jobs report tomorrow if that comes in weak uh, and, and takes the Fed out of the picture permanently. Uh, that would be really constructive. So I, I think we're there and the implications are going to be enormous. This is from Liz Young. Everyone's looking at this 4,200 level, which in my view means we either don't get it or we blow through it before we, we uh, rebound to 200 day. Um, here are some of the indicators we haven't looked at in a while. This is the 10 day uh, equity put call. This is super elevated. Uh, these are levels where you see inflection uh, and we're there, the NYSE 10% volume. I mean, you could just go point by point every single time and see that. And this one, this 1% EMA on the NASDAQ advanced decline ratio, this looks very much like 2015 and 16, where you had that double dip like we had in 22. Remember the August and then the October dip. Um, and then you get out of it and you rally, no one believes it. You check back hard like we did here in late 2016. And then you just take off for a year and a half. And I think we could be basically here is here and uh, that's what the co on a company by company basis we are looking at here nasdaq declining issues same thing nasdaq high low i mean every single one of these are pointing to extremes that we want to take advantage of real estate opportunity here that's all a rate play that's why this chart is the the key to the castle we keep an eye on that and as long as we can you know stay in there and work higher uh, which uh, the jobs report could play a good role in tomorrow. We're going to be in good shape. Dow breath, same thing. S&P mid cap, intermediate term volume momentum. These are all 
barometers, we use hundreds of data points to know when we are where we are. And I think we're at a good spot here. And uh, for those that just came in with new money, we're going to get that to work as soon as we uh, possibly can here to take advantage of this. And then um, uh, NAAIM, Active Investment Managers, um, you know, they're flushed 35%. The minute this market starts to move back and it could be violent, these guys are going to have to chase the next three months. And we're going into earnings season. Everyone's pessimistic. We think it's going to be plus 3%. Consensus is negative uh, uh, 10 or 20 uh, bips. This is water. All the bottles in Europe are glass, which is kind of cool, actually. Um, PMO, buy all, uh, Dow Jones, S&P telling the same story. It's time to buy. Um, uh, Pring Emerging Markets Diffusion Index. That's another one, Emerging Markets. This is all, when it goes, it's all going to go at once. The catalyst you know, whether it's the jobs report, whether it's Fed speak, whether it's uh, central bank intervention, something breaking, we're at that point where things are going to change. And when they change, they change abruptly. Uh, uh, S&P 500 bullish percent down at 26. These are areas, again, 2015, 16, you want to be a buyer, not a seller. Um, so, we're there, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the McClellan summation for the NASDAQ. Same thing, a check back, just like you had in 15, 16, in 12 and 13 before multi-year rallies. So when you, on a day-to-day -day basis, and you get a bunch of reds in a row, it gets, you know, you can get down. But when you look at it in context, you know, it takes weeks or months, and then boom, you get multi-years of up, 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 up. And people don't believe it till you make new highs, and then they all start to chase in, which pushes it higher. And I think that's what we're setting up for is new highs in the, in the general indices uh, before the election. So all of them are telling the same story here. Here's the bullish percent on an index by index, uh, industry by industry. Here's the NASDAQ. Here's consumer discretionary. This one looks like a screaming buy. So you look at the top weights and see what's oversold with growing earnings and, and improving fundamentals, uh, many of which we own. But um, uh, healthcare has, has gotten smashed. We know that with the XBI, uh, but that is uh, is stabilizing. Then you got industrials. Then you got tech. Then you got materials. You got Nasdaq. So all of these things are at places where it pays to be a buyer versus a seller, especially these REITs, all these interest rate sensitive, even the S&P 500 staples, that's also interest rate sensitive, believe it or not, uh, telcos um, and utilities, which we talk a lot about on this interview coming up. And then I want to just step back to some of the names we've discussed over recent weeks and months on the podcast. And even if they've been negative for a few days, just stepping back and taking inventory of where they are in the grand scheme of things, and you'll see nothing's changed. Amazon, little check back, it always does that offer, comes off the lows and then works higher. As you look back 20 years, even Alibaba is doing this normal consolidation, which we cover every single week before the parabolic move. So that may be a couple weeks, it may be a couple months, but it just does it every single time. Uh, here And by the way, that's just, again, a function of rates and a function of the dollar, which when that changes, everything changes and it all changes all at once. Then you got Bank of America, same story, high quality business, checking back. 
uh, Baxter, you know, similar situation here. Uh, oversold by all accounts. It doesn't mean it's going to go up tomorrow, but, um, you know, Citibank, same thing. These things have barely moved. This is in an uptrend of higher, higher lows and higher highs. It's going to work back higher. When everyone wants it at 75, we'll see how the business is doing and who's running it. And, uh, but right now it's at 39. So 75 from 39 is, you know, it's almost a double. And I think that could be over the next probably 18 months. Um, and these are the type of thing. Uh, CCI, we're going to talk about uh, in this uh, podcast video cast. Cooper Standard, same thing. This is all about the, you know, in the scheme of things, it's like, oh my God, it's terrible. But look how far we've come. This is a normal check back. We had one earlier this year. Nothing has changed other than the strike. The good news is the union people are getting nervous because they run out of money in two weeks or three weeks and uh, people don't like getting laid off and people don't like uh, getting their mortgage payment when they're only getting $500 from the union and when they're getting furloughed and they're going to start to get nervous. So here's the deal. You know, Ford's got five months of cash. The union's got five weeks of cash. So you tell me who's going to have more power when push comes to shove. As time moves forward, uh, the blustering by uh, Fane is going to go into begging and bumbling and that's not to say that auto workers shouldn't get more they should get more there should be a reasonable agreement here but when the competition is at 45 dollars an hour and 55 dollars an hour and they want more than 65 dollars an hour it's just not it's not sustainable so these people should just either a say okay i'm in this business i work nine to five uh, i make a decent living i need more because of inflation that's fair uh or this business is, you know, dying in the sense that America, you know, you can't compete in terms of manual labor. Let me get into the AI industry. Let me get into a new industry. Let me get into home building is booming again uh, and make more money. You know, that these things have to have to happen. You know, if you were a horse and buggy maker, you had to find a new thing. Maybe you started building automobiles in the 20s, but you weren't doing horses and buggies. Disney, same thing, you know, it feels like death every day, except that's what it does every time. You've had three opportunities in the last 25 years to buy this thing at more than 50% off. When, the, when Wall Street so, throws a clearance sale, everyone runs out of the store. It's the only place in the world that happens. And uh, yes, I know there's a lot of capex, and yes, I know there are a lot of problems, but you got Iger in charge and you got one of the greatest content and park franchises in the world that can't be replicated. So it's just a question of time arbitrage. Here's Generac, you know, building its base just like it did in 2015 and 16. Uh, no one can see the forest for the trees, but this is a normal bottoming process. You know, do you wish you're only buying it, uh, you know, when it goes up every single day? Yes, but that's not how you get doubles and triples. Uh, that's how you get uh, buy tops and, uh, and get your head handed to you because you're buying up after everyone's already been in. We're buying down when no one wants it. And you just, you know, you play the time arbitrage business and it works out. Google, same thing. Everyone's worried about Google now. Google's up huge since we were buyers and pounding the table last October. It's taking a breather. This will make new highs over time. Same thing with Intel. Couldn't give it away at 25. Now it's at 36, down from 40. Uh, but it's just getting started. This thing's going to work its way to new highs. Then you got uh, small caps here. Just been building this sideways. Feels like you know forever. It's been you know, 18 months it's been grinding sideways. 
after a record run in 2020 to 2021, it, uh, it's, it's doing a sideways consolidation before it take, makes its next leg higher. We'll participate in that. 3M feels like death. It's just working out the last sellers. Most of the bad news is already out. And as a matter of fact, good news has been coming in. The problem is with, with the fear about rates, people are scared to own anything. The minute that TLT gets bid, and we're going to talk about that a lot, all of this stuff is going to go and it's going to go all at once and everyone's going to say what happened. PayPal, um, even the NASDAQ checking back here before making new highs. It always does that. Did the exact same thing off the 2009 lows, did the exact same thing off the 2002 lows. It checks back and then it works higher, checks back, then it works higher, checking back now, and then it works higher. Uh, Rolls-Royce, huge parabolic move for us, pulled back a, a couple points here. And, uh, and it'll work higher over time. Even C Limited, okay? This is uh, uh, emerging markets play. It looked like death a couple of weeks ago. It's working back higher in it, even in a weak tape. Um, semiconductors, start, tried to make new highs. All these people bought, bought the breakout. Now it's checking back and consolidating, washing out the weak sisters. But this is what happens every single time. Uh, goes up, pulls back, makes a new high, pulls back, multi-year rally over and over, Stanley Black & Decker building its base, building its base, building its base, building its base, and then off to the races. And I think you're gonna see that uh, sooner than people anticipate. And then uh, TLT, this is the big one, but this is what happens every time, like whether it's 2013 and 14, whether it's 2016 to 2018, you see uh, hedge funds and large speculators get records short. It makes a lower low. All the technicians say, oh, it's a breakdown. Go short in the hole. And then boom, you get these rip your face off rallies. That's not to say this long-term trend is not broken. I can see that. I'm not blind. Uh, but I think that we could easily get a move up to 120 over the next few years. And if that happens, everything we own is going to be up monstrously. Doubles, doubles plus, uh, and it's going to be big leagues. So the other fear, because people can't put a timeline on when these rates are going to stop going up, this TLT chart, the key to the market, once this stops going down, i.e. rates going up, then all these companies that people are worried about their balance sheet are going to normalize and they're going to get bid and people are going to start paying attention to the fundamentals of the business versus the um, fears about the balance sheets. Uh, and it's going to be off to the races. Vornado, huge move up to, you know, from whatever it was, 12 to 26. Now it's checking back to 21. It did the exact same thing after its near-death experience in 2009, and it just works its way higher. We're not going to be heroes on this. We're, my, my guess is we're out in the mid-30s, and we'll just uh, ring the register after more than a double plus and call it a day. Uh, XBI feels like death, and what is it doing? It's just grinding sideways and consolidating and waiting for the risk-on signal, which is yield stop going up. And when it goes, they're all going to uh, go at once. So what I'd like to do is tune into that interview so you can get an understanding about the framework and some good input from two other managers about how they're thinking about rates and the impact on markets in different sectors uh, that are interest rate sensitive. So let's take a listen now. Yes. Good afternoon. I'm Evan Simonoff, Editor-in-Chief of Financial Advisor Magazine, and we're pleased to have you here at a session entitled A New Playing Field for Long Short Hedge Funds. Um, we've 
lived through a very volatile 21 months or so. You might have said the months before that were volatile, but asset classes were going straight up. So the public doesn't consider that volatility back in uh, 2021 anyway. Um, we've got a great panel of long short managers for you here today. Ali Motamid is the founder and managing partner of Envenomic Capital Management. Prior to founding Envenomic, he was a portfolio manager of the Boston Partners Long Short Equity Fund. He was named the Alternatives Category Morningstar Manager of the Year. I'm sure he will uh, have a lot of interesting thoughts to share with us today. Tom Hayes is founder and chairman of Great Hill Capital. Tom worked at uh, Cornwall Capital before starting Great Hill. He um, publishes a weekly timely commentary, and he has kind of a, a quality value bias, but we'll let him discuss that more. Um, and finally, we're lucky to have David Lundgren of Little Harbor Advisors, and he worked at Wellington for years, and he is something of a momentum guy. Again, we'll let him discuss that. He was the head of technical research at Wellington Management, and he was a managing director, portfolio manage, manager with extensive management experience in global. And I will tell you that he is the only one on this call today who is not in Europe. Um, so before we start, I was just warned to alert everybody that at 2.20, FEMA is scheduled to do some kind of national alert. So if your computer starts blaring or your cell phone starts jumping and dancing around, um, that's, uh, you'll know what that is. It's, it's just a test. I don't know if it's the emergency broadcasting system or FEMA or who, but it's a test. Anyway, let's get started. The low interest rate environment of the last 15 years was very favorable to long duration assets that included everything from bonds to growth stocks. It also challenged many value strategies. It was a tough environment for a lot of alternative investments when your stocks and bonds were basically going vertical. And 18 months ago, everything changed dramatically so. My question, I'll start with Ali. Um, how has the advent of inflation and a new central bank regime influenced your investment strategy since January of 2022? I mean, I think we look at where we are right now and, you know, you're looking at 15 year government bonds in the 5.1 to 2 range. And I think that's something that most of us didn't anticipate a little while ago. I think when you look at the margin that banks need in order to be able to facilitate their underwriting uh, credit risk. And you combine that, you know, you're looking at a eight to 10% minimum rate uh, for financing assets over a 15 year duration. 
in this country. That's generally been one of the lower, you know, lower rate uh, sort of uh, durations. And I don't think that corporate America is ready to handle that by any stretch. Now, I do think that, you know, the United States can handle it. And I think that uh, when we look at the opportunities that we've, we have, you know, considering that we didn't anticipate that one and we're sitting here and we're, we're sort of in a good position, uh, I think that, that those are unique opportunities to be able to participate and buy certain instruments that we never thought we would have a chance to at yields that, we, that you know, are much higher than we have anticipated. So I think, um, you know, it sets us up a little bit differently than it did before. I think funding matters a lot more. Uh, I think we look at balance sheets a lot more carefully, uh, making sure that our companies are durable and we'll be able to be there if we have a recession or not, you know, to come out of the other side of it. Okay. Tom, what are your your take on how you've navigated the last the 20 or so months? Well, you know, we like to buy straw hats in the winter. So, uh, whatever the macro serves up to us uh, is kind of immaterial in that the asset classes that will become attractive to us as a function of the macro that happened to be served up uh, will present themselves. Okay, so if you think about, um, uh, you know, during the COVID 2020 was a completely different environment from 2021 and 2022. So during COVID, when no, you know, oil went negative, no one wanted energy stocks, we bought the highest quality energy assets. We bought the highest quality banks uh, that were trading at 50% discount to book. Uh, last fall, after long duration assets got absolutely smashed and everyone thought Google was toast because uh, uh, OpenAI was going to eat their lunch and Bard was a failure because they had a bad launch show. Uh, we picked up assets like that. We picked up uh, businesses with moats like Amazon. We picked up semiconductors when they were left for dead. And the most hated of all during that period of left for dead was Intel, which was a you know uh, a bag of garbage that you couldn't give away with uh, with with your neighbor's purse. Uh, that's the type of stuff that we get very interested in. So we try to spend less time on macro and more time on buying durable, sustainable cash flows when they're temporarily out of favor. Uh, we profit from periods of dislocation, and the and the uh, macro is kind of the cause, but the opportunity set that shows up is is what hits our screens hits our attention and then, then we can do the diligence work on the balance sheet cash flows return on invested capital and, and find opportunity that way and david you're you're a momentum investor uh, the momentum hasn't been too i guess earlier this year it was favorable for about six seven months but it's been volatile what's your take on the current environment well, I mean, starting with the perspective of rates, I mean, since since really the late 90s, uh, rising interest rates have actually generally been good for stocks as opposed to the environment before that. And and that was true right up until the very beginning when, when rates just came off the bottom more recently. That was actually supportive for equities as well. But I think that it, once you got past a certain uh, boundary on the upside, that's when it really started to come unglued. And that's that actually started at the beginning of 22. So that relationship could could have uh, finally after after almost twenty years of or maybe more than twenty years of of the relationship that we've had where we're 
kind of stepping back from or trying to battle with deflation. So every time we had rising rates, that was a good thing. We may have turned the corner and we now are facing an inflationary environment. So things are normalizing, which in many ways could be a good thing, but also moving from one one regime to the next can be a painful process. And I, I would say the um, when when you look at the the market, the the inclination is to say that we've had a really good runoff the uh, at the start of, since the start of the year. But if you actually look at the uh, what the average stock has done, we're actually negative on the year. So uh, that's that's more in keeping with what a portfolio manager would experience as opposed to somebody who's buying buying and selling or trading uh, index futures or maybe as a passive long only investor. Um, you know, portfolio managers who are active managers, sort of in the weeds, trying to trying to pick stocks that outperform over time, uh, have have really have really been fishing in a pond that's more of a swamp these these <laughs> these past two years than than a than a nice vibrant pond full of uh, great great ideas. Okay, do you ex- do you expect a U.S. recession in the next uh, year? I mean, I I try not to. Uh, forecast the unforecastable. I think uh, people that are really good at really good at it aren't very good at it. So I, I know where to where to kind of like draw the line and spend my time. Um, but what what I do I do find interesting is that I think we we all can agree that that uh, payroll data is a lagging indicator. And uh, maybe maybe some of the folks on the call with us today can can help flesh this out. But I'm just surprised that 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 the uh, the strength of the payroll data is getting such airtime as it being, you know, why is this not coming in that suggesting that there'll be no recession when it's a lagging indicator to begin with. So I, I, I don't get too caught up on it, but I mean, I am kind of interested to hear what these guys might think about the, uh, the payroll data and doesn't matter that it's quote unquote so strong. Yeah. Ali, um, a lot of the smartest guys out there, Jeremy Grantham, Jeffrey Gunlock, all these guys have been saying, recessions coming um you have any sense or are you i mean if you told me what our political system would do i could tell you if a recession is coming because if you're going to hand out huge amounts of money to american citizens you will stave off any recession you you want at least for some period in time you know you also create inflationary outcomes so we're facing a situation where we have huge deficits and uh, I don't know how we're going to go about fixing some of those, but I think they are what's contributing to the not having a recession. And uh, I worry that they're not sustainable with financing rates for our U.S. government at the at the points that they are. And so it gets a little bit more difficult. You know, at some point, as we get our budget in a row, you know, tightened up, we're going to have a recession. And so I think that that's a little bit problematic. Okay, Tom? Your sense is? Uh, well, uh, the thing you learn early on in, in this business is never call both price and time in the same call. Uh, yeah, I guarantee you we're going to have a recession. I just can't tell you when. Uh, more likely than not, it's a lot further further out than most people anticipate is kind of our framework at the moment. And our view is constructed from the fact, uh, among other things, that uh, we did have a technical recession last year of two quarters of negative GDP growth. And despite the contraction in M2 money supply, uh, we are running $3 trillion above trend, uh, the long-term trend line, and that's gonna take a lot of time to absorb that. So uh, while uh, Ali makes a point about uh, bond yields and refinancing the debt, 
I think that what you have with global coordinated central banks is what you saw last fall when the Bank of Japan intervened to uh, uh, strengthen their currency. And that marked the bottom in the stock market. It marked the top in the dollar. And uh, yields began to compress from that point on. You saw a rally in emerging markets that was very abrupt for three or four months. Uh, you saw a rally in equities that took a lot of people by shock. Some of the biggest names that you refer to when the market was down 25%, uh, were calling for another 20%. And consensus at that point was that earnings were going to fall another 20%. And instead, uh, from that point, earnings revisions have continued to go up. So, uh, and then lastly, besides M2 money supply, besides the fact that we had the technical recession that everyone's waiting for, is the fact that you have uh, the largest segment of our population in their early 30s, namely the millennials. And historically, uh, that drives consumption, that drives growth. Housing formation is the key. And it's very difficult to have a weak economy when you have that many people in their early 30s. So this is demographically somewhat similar to the 80s or... Yeah, I mean, if you if you backdate the math, you're you're at about the early '90s. You're about um, you know kind of midway through a cycle. But again, <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. But we spend less time, or actually assign less weight. We spend the time, but we don't assign the weight to macro predictions and all of that. We look at uh, durable, sustainable cash flows that are temporarily out of favor that we can buy at a reasonable price. Okay, well, speaking of being out of favor, uh, Tom, you and Ali are in Europe, which yeah. uh, for a long time we've been we've been writing. A lot of other people have been saying that uh, Europe, there's a lot of value in Europe. It's out of favor. They they may not have great demographics, but uh, they do have quite a few cheap stocks. What? What's your sense of Europe and the world beyond America in terms of, I mean, one of, one of these days, they're going to outperform probably for a little while. I mean, I'm happy to go first. I think one of the difficult things is that, you know, Europe is very similar to the United States in its characteristics. And so, um, you know, while it is a uh, different country than they speak or area and they speak a different language, they have a lot of the same issues we have. And so you're not really creating a great sense of diversification uh, by uh, investing in Europe necessarily. You've got similar issues to the ones you do in the United States. There's an expanded group of companies which gives you an opportunity to be a little more selective in what you, what you choose to buy. Um, you know, but uh, obviously we have some element of capital controls in place that that limit our ability to invest in more of the commodity producing countries of the world, which would perhaps provide some element of an offset. And we respect those and and kind of go with it as we can. And, and I think that from our perspective, um, you know, we are a little bit less optimistic on both sides, Europe and the United States, than many of our peers. And we probably think the recession is, you know, outside of the political landscape, a little easier to call than perhaps other people may think. Yeah, I, th I think, Evan, uh, part of the reason that people perceive European stocks to be so much cheaper than the U.S. is because of the weighting of different sectors. So. If you back out 
the Magnificent Seven, which is the heaviest weights in the S&P 500. The forward multiple goes sub 15 uh, versus close to 20. So that makes our multiple look a lot less expensive. And they, you just don't have tech, high growth tech behemoths in the European indices. They're weighted by pharma. They're weighted by, uh, in particular, financials, which carry low multiples. So uh, I think you have to take it on an apples, uh, apples to apples basis. Uh, I think the better play in terms of undervalued uh, with growth, with positive demographics, with uh, abject pessimism uh, and untouchability or uninvestability right now is, is emerging markets. And I think to have that view, you have to have a view of some sort uh, that the route in bonds is nearly over and there will be a bid in the middle to long end of the curve. Uh, in the intermediate term. And uh, as such, uh, the dollar's counter trend rally uh, is uh, nearing the end versus the beginning. And if you, if you carry those two views, then it, which we do, then you can start to look at on a company by company basis, high quality businesses in those markets where there's a lot of geopolitical risk already priced into the multiples because that's the initial argument uh, I love the argument, uh, the anti-China argument, which is what if they what if they invade Taiwan? Well, if they invade Taiwan, your apples cut in half and so is the S&P. So what else do you want to talk about? Uh, so I, I think that uh, the, the, the world is flush with opportunities. But I think in terms of a versus a macro basis, I would look on a company by company basis. Are the, is the free cash flow increasing consistently? Is the multiple contracting or expanding? And how does that multiple look relative to its historical range and adjusted for uh, the increased cost of capital, which Ali referenced earlier. And I think a sector in the US that would be particularly excited or interesting at least right now is utilities, if you share those views, because you do have a lot of that rate sensitivity. Uh, effectively, they're somewhat proxies with somewhat of a different funding structure for US government debt. So, you know, uh, I would I would encourage the investor group to if they're going to pay attention to a sector in the United States, that that's one that might be interesting. And you do have uh, energy sort of renaissance, I guess, in the way they want to deliver energy that's going to lead to infrastructure investment, particularly in the T&D side. We're finding a lot of great assets in that in that area. So, again, you know, when when we talk to people, it's about trying to take these times rather than to be a hero, but to establish balance in your portfolio and resilience, you know. So, um, you know, that would be a chance right now where maybe we didn't have a chance to go buy the 5-2 Govy debt a couple years ago or the utility trading at 13 times and one and a half times plant. But, you know, we do now so uh, we can constantly improve the quality of the portfolio and a way to do it in the U.S. without risk to any uh, sort of investing in any other countries uh, that might not be politically favorable is to just participate in U.S. utilities. I, I'd have to just, you know, to put a bow tie on that because it was, you know, kind of feeding off of uh, what, what we laid out. I agree with Ali on the utilities. I, I think that's a, it's a contrarian trade with a high margin of safety at these valuations. In that context, which you'll probably disagree on this side, but they trade similarly, or maybe he won't, maybe he'll agree, 
is uh, selectively on the REITs, all, all the interest rate sensitive stuff that's been left for dead. And actually, people are waiting for a steepening of the yield curve to buy banks. And that's actually not what's driving the bank trade right now. Uh, what's driving the bank trade is mark to market. So if he's right about utilities, it means the route in uh, bonds has uh, stopped. It doesn't necessarily mean it's reversed, but it's definitely stopped or slowed. And if that's true, then you've got some opportunities on a discrete basis in REITs. But I think more importantly, uh, in banks, in terms of uh, 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 impressive outcomes, you know, the amount of embedded value in some of even the money center banks, but even some of the selected regional banks, that if you if the balance sheet started to look more durable, they'd get bid hard and they'd get bid aggressively. So it's all tied into the same. You have to have that view, whether you're thinking utilities, whether you're thinking REITs selectively, or you're thinking banks at the moment. David, what's your view of the market opportunity set facing investors now and over the next one to three years? Where do you see the, some of the biggest opportunities? and some of the biggest red flags? Well, I think that this might, my answer to this is uh, very likely going to uh, highlight some of the differences in how the three of us invest, where um, I think if you buy, if you're thinking of buying banks um, because they're down quite a bit and they're cheap, which is um, something that's not, I'm not qualified to, to speak to, but I do know that if you just step back and look at the big picture um, on banks, they've, they've been sort of an underperforming sector within the market since, 2004, 2005. So that's that's quite a long time of, of underperformance. And so the, the latest bank crisis that we're having is, is just another, um, there's, your, there's your alert coming in, uh, uh, is, is just another uh, chapter in the ongoing saga of, of bank underperformance. And I, to Ali's point, I think it was Ali that mentioned it, that, um, you know, th th that's largely why, why European equity indices have performed so poorly because they're so laden with, uh, with financials and and um, and other inflation sensitive assets. So I'm I'm a lot less inclined to to focus on uh, utilities and REITs and banks because they, they just they just haven't been the best performing sectors for for quite a while. And so what what I'm looking to do is like if you think about how I invest, I'm more in the mold of like a William O'Neill where it's trying to find uh, strong growth companies with positive momentum and trend and things like that. And and unfortunately, there while there have been some some uh, decent setups and uh, opportunities uh, over the past, say, 21 months. I mean, there, there really hasn't been. I mean, we're still paying the piper from the, the growth bubble that we went through in 21. And it's, it's you know, it kind of peaked out in the late 21, early 22. And that's kind of what the, that's the environment that I've been kind of dealing with as an, as an investor in my uh, process since then. I, I do go short. Um, as a hedge fund, I do go short, but I, I, um, I only explicitly short during down phases in a, in a bear market. So, um, I, so we, we had a decent year last year, but this year it's where it's more like, as you said, it's almost like 20 months of overlapping sideways price structure with, with growth paying the piper from the previous bubble. For me, it's just been a uh, hunker down and wait for, wait for things to settle down before you can really identify the next true leadership. If I may, on banks and, and REITs, we're, we're a little more selective. I mean, we're not really um, as bullish as we may be on some of the utility type names, uh, you know, but we are definitely interested in doing the work to be ready for when the opportunity comes because 
coming out of the back end of this, there may be a very nice one. Uh, it's just that we think going in on some of them, there's a little bit more risk than perhaps people perceive. And so we would rather be a little more neutral and spend our time doing the work and picking our moments. Tom, your thoughts on, on some of these? On uh, banks, REITs, and utilities or on- Yeah, uh, and uh, other um, opportunities, potential opportunities or- Yeah, I, I think that, I think that the bigger surprise this year, the end of this year into next year, is going to be that bonds get bid. And we say that for a number of reasons, whether it's uh, coordinated central bank intervention, the amount of debt outstanding, uh, the amount of, um, you know, one of the data points that we look at among hundreds is uh, the commitments of traders report with hedge funds record short. The last time you saw large speculators this short 10-year uh, note, uh, was the bottom in 2018, which like right now, uh, ironically, you had an overshoot of the low where, where all the technicians came in and said, oh, it just made a lower low, you know, therefore you should short it in the hole. And what happens is often when everyone's already on that boat as evidenced by the data and the positioning, uh, there are no marginal sellers left. I also think that you're gonna see material pension demand step in before the end of the year to lock in uh, long-dated assets at four and a half plus percent to match their long-dated liabilities. Few people are really paying attention to the supply and demand on that side. Um, and I think more likely than not, you're going to see the Bank of Japan step in to defend its currency, which is going to have knock-on effects. So in that context uh, of a weaker dollar and stronger bonds, which you, you know may, maybe uh, Ali will agree modestly on, on these uh, two points, but it doesn't really matter about the view. I just look at where are the opportunity sets and then where can we find strong enough balance sheets where we're willing to wait because ultimately we're in the time arbitrage business. So when the markets get dislocated, we don't really pay a ton of attention to price. What we pay attention to is, is the earning power and future prospects of this business impaired on the basis of what's causing the dislocation in global markets or is it improved or is it steady and if it's steady or impaired and it's marked down 15 percent because of some seasonal volatility or some funds got caught sideways and create some deleveraging in the system uh, we'll just look to see whether we have availability to uh, scale up in a position that uh, we know has great long-term prospects uh, and I think that um, when I think about where we are now, given that framework, uh, I think certainly some, some utilities, I think certainly some REITs, I think certainly some banks, I think if you take the view that the dollar counter trend strength is nearing an end, uh, then you want to be in multinationals that have greater than 50% of their revenues abroad. Uh, and you want to have some exposure to um, emerging markets. And you can get that directly or you can get it indirectly. So what are two major companies that have been smashed, which we don't own because of China fear? Uh, Nike is one of them, uh, high quality, durable business. Uh, and Starbucks is another one that uh, both have largely been smashed on fear of China growth expectations. You know, China is so bad, they're going to grow 5% this year. And, and it's, it's mind boggling when you think about it. Uh, the amount of aversion because of perceived and, and real geopolitical risk and, and policy risk, which has been uh, uh, less than desirable, to, to put it mildly, 
but you know it's it's like the old saying meet the new boss same as the old boss this is you know kind of the same boss of the last 10 years where you had huge runs and um when the dollar weakened uh, they got the flows and when the dollar was strong uh the flows came out of emerging markets and this time will be no different uh, but if you can make a compelling case that the dollar is going to continue to strengthen, then that thesis is is uh, null and void. Uh, we're just taking the other side. If you get a bond bid, which you may be quite right, like you're going to, and you don't, and you didn't buy your five two and your five percent bonds for your clients. Look, everybody here is out to serve a purpose of living a life, right? If you're yeah. getting an opportunity to go buy U.S. government debt and lock in rates that are higher than you ever thought you would within a reasonable context to be able to achieve your goals and you don't do it, I think it's not a good idea. I think you should do that. We all hear managing hedge funds, but I think that really when you look at what is outside, we've had the biggest move in rates in, in thousands of years uh, off the bottom here, literally thousands of years. B of A did a study off the bottom. So if if everybody runs out and they just get one thing to remember from this, that would be what I would say is, please, just revisit your allocations. Think about what your goals are and then, you know, think of what's in front of you as an opportunity. Yeah. And, and you, just to add on what Ali just said is uh, uh, he deals in thousands. I'll talk hundreds. This would be the first time in 250 years that uh, bonds were negative three consecutive years in a row. Uh, I wouldn't make that bet. I know there are a lot of big names out there that are, you know, shorting in the hole very aggressively and being very vocal about it. But, uh, uh, you know, sometimes you have to keep in mind uh, incentives and the incentive may be getting out of a big position uh, when, when uh, you know, it's, it's uh, aggressive being, aggressively being advertised that the route's going to continue. So uh, keep in mind... What I can tell you is we, we, we spend a lot of time on positioning and sentiment in, in terms of the broader framework, uh, kind of top down and then bottom up on a company by company basis. And positioning and sentiment are very important. And, and we're at extremes in emerging markets, in anything uh, rate related, um, uh, you know, in all the utilities that these are times where you can't pick the bottom. But if you know what you're buying and you know what you're owning, at the level of debt globally and the amount that has to be refinanced, the world won't work without some intervention. So, you know, you can make the case we're going into the dark ages and short everything and go to cash. I would I would take the other side of that aggressively. And whether it happens naturally from demand or unnaturally from intervention, we're at the point where things can break again. And we're at the point where uh, something will happen. Either demand will fill the gap or intervention will fill the gap. And that's going to be a regime change that very few people are positioned for over the next 12 to 36 months. David, would I know you're probably not a long-term bond expert, but would you tell your naval neighbors up there on the North shore of Massachusetts if they ask you for advice to take a look at long-term treasuries? Uh, I mean, what uh, Lee said is, you know, I didn't think I'd see uh, 4.9% again um, in each, you know, in this decade, and that's what they're yielding. And just as a, a, a wise man in your town. You know, um, I think the, the choice you have is you can either just get, capture basically the same yield, or actually an even better yield, with a... Um, 
with a shorter dated note and you have the benefit of continuing to see your your yield go higher should yields go higher and and um i i you know tom i'm, I'm completely uh, on on the same page in terms of positioning and everything else it's looks pretty extreme but i it, I'm not so sure that like when when trend changes, it always does the most something that it's ever done in the moment that it changes. And and so what I'm concerned about is that the degree to which we've come off the lows, the very fact that yields went negative, you know, when you when you think about bubbles, uh, you know, yield the yield on a bond is the valuation, and and um, yields were negative for uh from 17 trillion dollars in bonds uh during during the past couple of years and and you know coming at the end of a 40 year downtrend in rates that seems like a pretty um auspicious way to end the bubble and so what and, and so if that was true and i you know i had this view that if that's true we should see a violent move against that just like we saw a violent move after the 99 bubble in equities we had just saw a crash so the same thing happened to bonds we they crashed and so I'm not sure that that I'm comfortable saying that I would buy a 30-year bond here because my concern is more that that rates have changed their trend and and uh, we've kind of unleashed the inflation genie out of the bottle and it's going to be tough to get it back in. Yeah, that, that, but I, I think you're correct in terms of whether you should or maybe your client should. I think if you're managing hundreds of billions of dollars of pension money and you have a 30-year liability, and your liability, you have to yield 4% and you can lock in 4.5, and you don't do it, your, your career is going to be very short lived. So um, I, I think there are other factors at play here. Um, now, if you're right, and we are going to persist higher, then you have to think in terms of if we're not going into the apocalypse, what does the nominal growth rate have to be in an environment that can sustain seven, eight, nine percent yields? And you'd have nominal growth, you know, at some similar level of high single digits, uh, i.e., you know, effectively inflating that debt away. And in that environment, what type of businesses would do well? You know, businesses that can pass along price to customers and, and would absolutely mint money. And, uh, you know, you'd start to look for for dislocation in those sectors showing up in a material way and it's just not happening at the moment. So that may that may change, but it hasn't changed yet. So it doesn't forebode either a super high nominal growth environment that would support super high yields that could be refinanced at high yields in theory. Um, um, and it, and I, you know, I, I'd be willing to take the apocalyptic view, except the world only ends once. And if the world ends, the last thing I'm going to be worried about is is uh, bond yields and you know real versus nominal terms. So, um, so so far so good on the world ending. But um, uh, on a discrete basis, would I buy a 30 year bond? No. Would I would I consider a 10 year bond? I would want to express that view in in better ways where I can benefit from the leverage of a balance sheet, i.e. utility, i.e. Uh, a discrete REIT, i.e. a bank who has mark-to-market issues that when it gets bid, uh, you know, you'll get a double because it's trading at a discount to book and it's, uh, you know, has a generally healthy cash flow profile um, and, and relatively steady business. So, um, but I can def definitely see your viewpoint that that's just how I would, you know, kind of frame it. You get a double buying 14-year U.S. government debt right now with zero coupons. 
or with low coupons. So that's that, you know, first of all, the 30 year argument, I think is an extreme. I'm not sold on the 30 year. I think David's right in the sense that when things go for 40 years, one way they turn around and they don't just go for a couple of days the other way, they probably go a little longer. Uh, but I also think that, you know, our government is out to look for the people and people will hurt in this environment. And if we have a rate perpetuation that keeps going, it's going to get damaging. You cannot finance a home at 420,000 median price at 10% and then pay your uh, other bills and only earn $70,000. You're going to have a lot of hurting citizens. And I think our government will do things to help those people. And I think that you will have a, uh, a you know, what was a massive move that has happened in a relatively short time being to some extent, you know, normalized and made by our government into something that our citizens can handle. And maybe over the 30 year duration, the rates are right. But I think that over that mid midter term, and we're stock pickers, we don't do this stuff like, but we just see what's out there, right? But I think over that midterm period, as they make the transition, you might have a nice chance to pick up some some stability, some yield, uh, balance your portfolio, and then have capital to redeploy in that weak moment. Okay, well, Ali, you know, as uh, you've had some successful short sales in your career, very successful. Is there anything in particular that you were either short or considering? Yeah, I mean, I would like to, but the one thing I'll point out, like the market's been up, I've been doing this 20 something years. I think we're barely break even short selling, right? So like the idea that we've made money short selling, that's not what we do. We're trying to hedge and manage our exposures so that we have the opportunity to buy things when other people can't, um, you know? So, so that's kind of how we look at it. And when I look at just short opportunities, I would say, they're all over the place in the sense that, you know, we have 4,000 co companies in our universe that we look at. Uh, we're shorting, you know, 100 to 200 of them, roughly speaking. And when you're trying to look at, you know, 2 to 3% of the companies traded in the market and say perhaps those are, are, are well overvalued and going to go down and set us up as a good opportunity to protect capital for our investors, you know, we, we have pretty good opportunity to do that. And our portfolio exposures right now are relatively low. So there isn't really anything I would, you know, rush out and say, like, you know, I do think it may be hard for people to pay for their house, right? I do think when you've had defaults on loans being pushed off, so your first loan defaults a student loan at 16% and then the rates go down. And so when you think about it, if you don't have to pay your student loans, you don't default on your mortgage, you don't default on your car, you keep paying them until you default on your student loan and then you default on everything at once, right? And then also from a housing perspective, it just gets hard when you look at those rates, right? So, we, you know, uh, I, I would be a little bit more concerned about those areas. But again, I think that, uh, you know, over the midterm to longer term, they, they will stabilize. That. Well, um, David or Tom, I'll leave you saluting to the housing, I guess you'd call it gridlock. Um, people won't sell their house because they've got a 3% mortgage. And <coughs> the only people buying 
are, as I understand it, just talking to real estate brokers is um, people with 50% or more in down payments. And that's not your typical millennial buyer, though some millennials have been saving up for a long time and they can do it if they're fairly successful. How do you see the housing sector? Um, David? Well, I'm a, you know, as a trend, trend following momentum oriented investor who respects fundamentals tremendously as much as anybody on this panel, I just respect the market's opinion of the fundamentals more so than my own, certainly. What I'm always looking for are uh, fundamental narratives that just aren't playing out in the market. And so when the consumer was supposed to crash and the rates were, with, when rates were taking off and housing was supposed to, uh, this is speaking back last year when housing was supposed to just completely fall off a cliff and yet home builders just kept outperforming. That to me was the market's way of sniffing out something that was counter to the, the accepted narrative, which we now know that with rates where they are, nobody's gonna uh, sell their house because they don't wanna roll up to a 7% mortgage yield. Um, so for me, I like to I like to find those situations where the where the, the the trends as expressed by the market, which is the market's fundamental view, are are saying something that's counter to the narrative, and uh, that's clearly one. And I, I wouldn't. It's it's still it's still a, a decent um, a decent uh, uh, um, area of the market as far as I can tell at this point. The other one too was was basically when when the bear market started in the beginning of 2022. It was, you know, once you can identify that you're in a bear market, obviously the first thing you want to do is hunker down and protect capital. But once you, you've done that, the next step you want to focus on is trying to find those areas of the market that are doing better than they should be doing, given their beta profile. And oftentimes that's the market's way of telling you that this is what leadership is going to look like once once this bear market is over. And, and it's interesting to note that if you, if you look at the relative performance of the industrial sector, at the very beginning of 2022, which was when the bear market started, relative performance bottomed right then, and pretty much outperformed throughout the entire uh, the entire bear market. Uh, particularly if you look at industrials on an equal weighted basis, and that's the market's way of sniffing out superior fundamentals and saying, yes, this is a bear market, but when this turns, this is going to be where you want to be. And now we know, uh, you know, onshoring semiconductors and rebuilding of America, and that's all playing out right now. Now we understand that the, the fundamental narrative. So that to me is. Is still uh, pretty attractive, and then I, I also don't want to lose sight of the the uh, the strength that energy has displayed over the past couple of years in the throes of a bear market, reversing a ten or so year relative performance downtrend, and and uh, you know it's by far over the past two years has been the strongest sector in the throes of a bear market. And again, money goes to where it's treated best, and that's always where the best fundamentals are. And so the fact that energy is doing as well as as it is, oil above eighty five is definitely intriguing to me as well. And so you you tend to think that, I mean, fundamental investors will say housing like energy has uh, been plagued by a decade of underinvestment and now it's uh, in very short supply. Yeah. Uh, but to get back to what you said about industrials, do you think that they could be in the next uh, bull market, one of the leadership groups? I do, I and mean, I think if you if you look at just look at the current leadership of the market, I mean, it's a it's almost a who's who of this is what's kind of perplexing to me. I, I hear a lot of people say um, that the, the the quote unquote market has been whistling past the graveyard. We have all these negative macro data points, and yet the market's up fourteen or something percent year to date. That I I just believe that's patently false. That's just not that's not what's actually happening. What's actually happening is ten stocks have driven the S and P higher, 
and the average stock is actually down year to date. So the, the average stock is fully engaged with the, the very uh, uncertain, volatile macro regime that we're in right now. The average stock is not doing much of anything. The, the Half the market is below where it was at the bottom of the banking crisis. So, and, and the average stock is still down over 20% from its January 2022 peak. So we're still very much in a bear market and the market's very much from the bottom up engaged with this, uh, this bear market that's going on. And you, you would you ask about shorting, uh, like right now at the end of a, a, you know, a 20% decline, I'm not, not too keen on shorting too much, but the, the, the last great short setup was, was of course the digital asset space when it rolled over. I mean, that was, you just, that was a, a situation of just change the names change the storylines a little bit and you basically have the dot-com bubble all over again, including naming rights for stadiums, celebrity endorsements, the smartest money in the room, buying it all the way down all while the market is telling you it's over. Um, so that was the, that that's probably one of the best shorts we're going to have. We will have seen, uh, uh, you know, for could be for a couple of decades, much like the, the, the dot-com bubble uh, post that bubble was, it was a great shorting opportunity as well. Um, Ali or, or Tom, do you think, do, how did you see Bitcoin as one of the short Bitcoin. opportunities? I, I, yeah, I spend zero time on that. Um, for, you know, for me, we're uh, interested in productive assets that generate cash uh, as it relates back to housing. Um, just to kind of put a bow tie on that, I think you, you have the cost of, you know, if you, if you just look at the Fed's dot plot, which doesn't really tell you much, but it does tell you that the rate, the direction that they believe rates are going and they're usually, uh, they overshoot on both sides and right now they're overshooting to the upside, but they're still telling you in spite of their hawkishness, that rates are going to be a lot lower six months out, uh, not six months out, nine months out. And then, uh, nine plus 12, 21 months out. Uh, and so you're going to see, you know, Fed funds rate at, you know, what is it, uh, maybe by three, nine in the next 12 to 15 months. And then uh, even I think yeah, as they get up to two and a half years, it's in the twos. So uh, in that environment, demand comes back into housing, but also you have the millennials, again, 82 million. You haven't had a setup like this in residential housing since the early 90s in terms of demand. Uh, so it's a, it's a push-pull. But I'll tell you, the minute you see rates, mortgage rates come in 50%, that demand is going to be right back. And, uh, and, I, and I think you're also going to see a change in supply of housing where, you know, believe it or not, not every... 33 year old needs a 4,700 square foot house with a movie theater. Uh, it'll be more like Levittown in the 50s, uh, the last boom post World War II, where everyone gets, you know, a thousand, two thousand square foot house to have a baby get things started. And there's just not, a, uh, not enough supply of that. I think now that with technology, those homes can be built a little further and further out from the city because people don't have to be in every single day. Uh, that supply will come on, and and uh, and that's what that the sector has been telling you with, with its strength. Um, I I you know it's just a DNA thing. I, I don't chase things up. You know it's had a huge run. I, I you know I missed that sector. I, you know I talked about it. I thought about it. I did nothing. Uh, so I'm not going to chase it after the fact. I'm going to find those things that are leaving the station versus those that have left the station. S similar with energy in 2020, we were very interested. Last December, everyone was calling me, what do you think about energy? I, I said, I think sold to you. I, you know, I was interested two years ago. 
do I like the secular trend? Do I think we're setting up similarly to the early 2000s in terms of emerging markets, in terms of small caps, in terms of value? Yes, I do. But uh, let it take a breather. Let it knock all the Johnny come latelys out. Uh, and then uh, I'll catch the next leg. Okay, we got a question here from the audience. Um, could each of you describe the amount of your portfolio's net exposure, long or short, and why, and what would cause you to change it? I'll I'll jump in. We're running like probably I don't know somewhere between ten and I mean it, it, it's between ten and twenty five. It varies by the day, but not by more than a little tiny bit. So we're probably seventeen or eighteen right now. Uh, net long, um, we don't run net short. You know, we uh, we're probably a little less optimistic than the than the rest of the crowd. Okay, and uh, Tom or David, do you have a net position exposure? Um, I, I, I'll jump in quick. So we're, as I said earlier, I only short in in established bear markets, and and as I think I described earlier, we're still in a bear market. It's we had a shot at at terminating the bear market off the October bottom with that large rally that we had leading into the banking crisis. But since that banking crisis, much of the rest of the market is just kind of restored to its old trends, which is back to uh, the, the bear market environment. So we do have some short exposure on right now, and our overall gross exposure is is down from where we would like to see it in a, in a robust bull market. But right now it's probably um, 25% net long. Okay. Yeah, so um, uh, I'll just say, I mean, one of the things I learned working at Cornwall Capital, and for those of you who don't know or are a little younger, uh, Cornwall was featured in the big short. I worked for the guy played by Brad Pitt, uh, who was a lot smarter than Brad Pitt in person, but not quite as handsome, although, uh, you know, I'm sure he would believe that he was. Um, and, and I wouldn't correct him on that. Um, we express short views um, when the asymmetry is in our favor. So when we can take a limited amount of capital and have an expected value of two, three, four, five X, and we express it through long premium uh, with a specific idea. And right now, given the, the market volatility, given the sell-off in names, given the fact, uh, and I think David aptly pointed out that most of the market has done nothing uh, this year and, and on balance is negative, uh, excluding, you know, 10 or 12 stocks that have caused the S&P to be up, whatever it is, 13% year to date. So we're more interested in buying what's on sale. You know, Wall Street is the only place when they hold a clearance sale, people run out of the store. And right now there's a lot of stuff on clearance. And I think his point was 50% uh, uh, of the stocks in the S&P 500 are below the banking crisis lows in March. Was that correct? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's slim picking. So, you know, why would I want to get aggressively short into what is still $3 trillion above trend money supply, uh, an environment where I can find high quality, durable cash flows uh, at uh, massive discounts. So we'll find, and I can express shorts through different views, right? I mean, I can express shorts through having a view on rates. Uh, I can express shorts uh, many different ways. So as far as, is there a pound the table, um, short that that one could express today that would make a lot of sense on a risk reward basis and i would say they're more limited than you think because if you think about the basic things that we would look at where 
you know, well above average historic multiple with slowing growth and a downside catalyst. Getting those three things in place right now outside, you know, 20 stocks. I mean, it was funny. I was looking at the Arm Holdings uh, IPO and I think when it went out, what was it, 100 times earnings and 25 times sales? I don't know. Someone will correct me on that, but it, or it was 100 times sales and 20, whatever it happened to be. But I wouldn't short that. Like, I wouldn't short it because I understand the game. There's been no supply. The ducks are quacking. You feed them and, uh, and it's working. So until you start to see a massive amount of supply of new paper, uh, shorting opportunities are going to be very, very discreet and on a one-off basis. And uh, so, so we, we have limited, we're, we're really looking at this volatility as opportunity in the year end. Managers still positioned too defensively in cash. They've been all year. And uh, I, I, think the, I think the risk going into year end based on sentiment positioning and going into earnings, which earnings for the last three quarters have been too pessimistic by 300 basis points. We're probably going to have earnings growth uh, plus 3% this quarter because expectations are negative 20 bips. Uh, I wouldn't want to be short into that. So um, if you can find me something, you know, one that was interesting that we talked about publicly in June because they, uh, I was on a TV station that forced me to have two, you know, three picks and two pans. And my two pans were NVIDIA and, uh, and uh, Apple, not because they're bad businesses, but you know, at that point, Apple was trading, I think, I, I don't know what it was, 24 times, 25 times with uh, earnings growth decelerating to, you know, mid single digits. And um, so it was a, like a four or five times peg and uh, as opposed to its historic multiple of 14 times and kind of a euphoria around it, et cetera. So it was priced for perfection. But would I ever short that? Absolutely not. That That's like brain damage. And then finally, we would never talk about shorts publicly. I think uh, a lot of lessons have been learned about that over the last 24 months. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, it's on a discrete basis. It's when there's massive asymmetry where I can risk maybe 1% of capital for a 3 to 5x EV. Uh, and those are few and far between in, in the current environment in, in our view. Okay, well, fascinating analysis and uh, good food for thought. Uh, we are over our time, but I want to thank uh, David and Ali and Tom for taking uh, this time out of their business trip or vacation or whatever and calling in. And we've had a fascinating 50, 55 minutes here. And for the rest of the audience, thanks for being here and enjoy the rest of your day and come tomorrow because we've got a good show for you then. And we're back. Uh, I thought this was interesting from Goldman because a lot of the stocks they're looking at, uh, we either own or are looking at, but it says these 40 stocks have the biggest upside right now ahead of a Q4 market rally, including one that could rise over 175%. That's from Goldman Sachs. They just put out the note. So Moderna, they're calling for big. That's biotech, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, a big weight. Solar Edge, uh, yeah, we, have, we haven't asked me anything question. These things have been beaten down. There will be some that benefit FMC, uh, Insight. So you can see the difference between the price target. And I like a lot of these because they're beaten down names. And many of them we've looked at and some of them we actually have initiated. Um, uh, Insight, Organon, that's the spin from Pfizer. Warner Brothers Discovery, balance sheet a little hairy, but I think that's going to work once rates stop going up. First Solar, um, Sealed Air. So there's a lot of solar in there. Etsy, 
We've talked about on Ask Me Anything questions, Biogen, another biotech, Salesforce. Uh, haven't done anything there either. Um, Enphase, that's another one we have a question on today. Pfizer, I think, is getting really interesting. I think we covered that one a couple weeks ago. Boeing is interesting on this pullback. Tapestry is another one they have. Disney, they say um, they've got upside to price target 57.9%. But you know how the analyst game works. Once they make that, they upgrade their upgrade. Uh, SBAC communications, that's another thing like CCI tied to rates. Bed Bath & Body Works, don't know much about that one. Match Group, Bungie, Bungie, uh, that's a, uh, all right. PayPal we own. Um, so they're saying upside to price target 52.2. Once that happens, they'll upgrade it again. Target, eh, we covered that one. That's probably going to work, but it's not for, not for us. Uh, Nike, we've talked about a lot. Dollar General, we've talked about. Uh, Expedia, there's also Booking, which uh, Jacob Sonenshine covered in Barron's this week, worth a look. Johnson Controls, interesting. Estee Lauder on China Fears, interesting. Charles Schwab, um, you know, we've got the regional bank basket and a couple of the money centers. Mohawk Industries, been meaning to look at that, haven't done it yet. General Motors, we own, you know, by proxy through Cooper Standard. We've got enough exposure and better exposure because we'll get more bang for our buck. Alaska Air Group, some of these airlines have been crushed on fuel fears. Uh, and utilities, which you heard Ali talk about on the interview. Kenview, that's a spin. Prologis, Simon Property Group, that's the REIT play we've been talking about with rates, whether it's Renato and uh, CCI. Amazon, we own. American Tower, same as CCI. And they've got an upside to price target of 41%. Uh, Bloomberg today, U.S. banks raise China GDP forecasts and see economy past bottom. Upgrades return outlook to economists' consensus of 5%. You know, I always say China's doing so horribly this year, they're going to grow at 5%. Meanwhile, no one else, no other major developed economy is doing anything close. So they're catching up. China's economy stabilizes, factory activity returns to expansion. None of that matters till the dollar weakens. The dollar weakens when rates stop going up hawkishness comes out of the market everything happens all at once so just patience if you don't have the stomach find another hobby um, china's economy improves in september satellite data shows so this is kind of the live data about uh, traffic reaching the highest point in two years etc 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 it's reflected in the numbers you don't need satellites anymore it's it's showing up in the real numbers end of the world stock market and sentiment results i know in wall street uh, the last few weeks, it feels like the end of the world, but the picture above tells a different story. That's us uh, canoeing through the uh, caves in, um, I think that was Albufera, which is another part of Algarve, which was like 30 minutes or 40 minutes from where we were staying. Uh, writing this week from Portugal, uh, we had a trip planned months ago to go visit Lisbon, Algarve, and Sintra. Being in this game long enough, you come to understand that the market and your positions will only go in one direction, which is down the minute you go on vacation. <laughs> if you work in the business, you're chuckling as you read this. By the time your flight lands on the home tarmac, the selling pressure is over and the markets recover, leaving you with not a thing to do. Pain when you want to play golf, pleasure when you want to work. God has a sense of humor, that's for sure. Sometimes it's nice to leave New York and Connecticut to get some perspective. In summary, no one cares about the markets outside of the Wall Street. They are living their lives in the sunshine. I guess knowing that sooner or later, good companies resolve to the upside. All right, that's my commentary there. But in all seriousness, the time difference is ideal. Get in 18 holes before the open, work 
then family time the rest of the day, rinse and repeat. As I keep a pulse on the markets, it's apparent that things have gotten stretched to the downside and that a reversal is in sight. If you're trying to pin it to the day, I land in Newark on Sunday. So <laughs> that should be a good enough uh, indication when we start to see some buying come in. Some other indicators here. Uh, by the way, you'll see if you look at my show notes that I laid out here, the uh, host, Evan, uh, went in a completely different direction of, of uh, what we planned, which was made it very interesting. But um, a couple of the points here that he didn't get to, um, you can you can actually read. Um, I did try to work some of those, some of those in, and then some indicators. Here's the seasonal pattern from over the last. Uh, 32 years it inflects the early october and then you get to rip your face off rally into year end i think this time will actually follow that model the seasonality correlation has been pretty strong signs of panic creeps up that's near bottoms with this vix curve starts inverting um and then you have the rise in yields has reached the quote-unquote relentless stage those were inflection points uh in the last five or six times from Jason Copert. Then Charlie Bellello uh, talks about, you know, normal size drawdowns mid-year. Bank of America shows the bearishness. Uh, and then uh, Seth Golden shows how consumer balance sheets are improving. So a lot of good stuff going on those fronts. Sentiment is washed out with uh, only 30% bullish, 41% bearish. So just starting to work up off the lows. Fear and greed got down to 19 yesterday. And the National Association of Active Investment Managers is flushed down to uh, 43. So that's a good thing they'll have to chase with all that money on the sidelines. Uh, this is interesting. The earnings that we had from, let's see, why are those not coming up? Okay. Oh, because I've got this pen thing. How do I get rid of this pen thing? All right, exit drawing, there we go. Okay, uh, Russell 2000 top 30 weights. We did the earnings estimates over the last 60 days. This blew my mind. Um, the cumulative earning 2023 earnings power of these 30 stocks, the top 30 small cap stocks in the IWM uh, or in the uh, Russell 2000 index, was revised up by 6.32% in the last 60 days. 2024 estimates were revised up 5.6%. And then on the S&P, the cumulative 2023 earnings power of these 30 stocks was revised up by 10.66% in the last 60 days and up 10.81% uh, uh, for 2024. This is mind-boggling. So I'm just trying to see which ones are contributing uh apple was revised up let's see here microsoft big big revision upward in amazon huge in uh nvidia um google's up tesla basically every single one google's big big upgrade uh meta big berkshire big unh down a little bit and yet people can't get enough unh it's, that's interesting xom is up a bit uh lily is down people are tripping over themselves for lily and and uh, their estimates have come down that's the way it works 
until it doesn't. Uh, JPM up, no one wants banks. J&J up, no one wants it. Same with Visa's up. Avago's up, can't give away a semiconductor right now other than Intel, there's irony at its finest. Home Depot up, can't give it away. Uh, this is, this is kind of hysterical. Uh, Merck up, can't give it away. Costco flattish. Uh, Adobe up. Pepsi up, can't give it away. Walmart up. Costco, uh, Cisco up. Every single one of these is basically up, except the ones that, where the stock price is up, the earnings are going down. Everyone, this, everyone else is, the stock price is down, the earnings are going up. And that is huge. CRM, uh, agnostic there, and uh, ACN down. So very interesting development on that front. Um, this is the name of the game tomorrow. You want to see average hourly earnings come down to get the Fed out of the way. You want to see payrolls come in lower than expected. Non-farm payrolls estimates are 170,000. So hopefully we can get that done. Get a bid into TLT and be back off to the races. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, estimates uh, negative going into uh, earnings season, which is great. It sets the stage for upside surprises, which is what we've had uh, the last three quarters, which is why we've risen so much off the bottom. And now we're on to the Ask Me Anything questions. We've got quite a few of them. So here we go. For those of you who like the Ask Me Anything, stick around. We've got some great ones. For those of you who don't, thanks for tuning in. Uh, but here we go. So uh, Uh, okay, Matt just asked, are you, um, I haven't talked about uh, 3M. Uh, are you adding? Um, we are not adding, but we are hold on that. And um, we, we don't, um, no, that's just, it's, it, it's sized proportionate to its risk and its upside. We haven't added, we haven't subtracted. We're just uh, holding no change, which is, what we do in 90% of the situations, the exception would be BABA, which we think has abnormally high upside relative to the intrinsic value, but that'll change when the dollar changes, when the Fed changes, which it will. And, you know, no one can see it now, so we're not worried about it. But when it happens, it's going to happen very, very quickly. Uh, so that one we use weakness to add to uh, over the last year. It's basically been going nowhere. Uh, Jenny, okay, that's that's a new spam. Uh, Britta. Okay, here we go. Tila tap. What's the longest amount of time you've had to wait for an investment to succeed? A uh, good one is range resources. This one took a ton, a, a long time, but it's still not done, which I cover a lot. So in 2018, the stock was down from um, 91 to 11. And we initiated the position because we figured out the uh, proved and unproved reserve PV10. For those of you who know oil, uh, we're about 60, 65 bucks and the stock was trading at 11. It immediately went to 18. We thought we were geniuses and then COVID came. It dropped down to uh, $1.60 or something, uh, $1.58. 
we brought we added so much in the hole um we brought our basis down to like four dollars and ten cents uh went up to 36 dollars, so a nine bagger so 800 percent uh and now it's hovering at 31 and we're holders of this until at least intrinsic value of 60 65 um so um and then probably probably even higher so when all is said and done this one could be uh probably a 15 to 20 bagger uh but it took uh let's see 2018 five years for a 20 bagger so yeah that's that's pretty good um and uh and it went hugely against us before it went for us and we took advantage of that opportunity because nothing had changed in the uh, what they controlled under the ground and sooner or later the demand for that was going to be there so uh, yeah, five years is a long time. 20x is a great return. Uh, or it's not 20x now, it's uh, 7x. So, you know, you tell me what that CAGR is and if it's worth waiting. So for those of you getting down on BABA or one of these other things and uh, or Cooper Standard because it does a little check back, um, you know, you, you just can't have the results if you can't tolerate uh, what I was able to tolerate during COVID with range resources. But good question. Um and the answer, by the way, is I know we've covered a lot. There's one guy who always comes on, you know, I'm Mr. Leverage, and I'm sure he's got smoked out because he over leverages and he made a couple bucks uh, during COVID and now he's probably toast and blew up his account uh, because uh, that's the three killers. Ladies, liquor, and leverage in excess, like Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett always say, you can't use leverage. You can't wait through this if you're on leverage. You're done. You're, you're gonzo. You're taken out in a stretcher. But if you have no leverage, it's just a mark-to-market problem, and you wait for it to come back. And as long as you've done the work and you know what you own, just like owning apartment buildings, you know, if uh, if you own apartment buildings and the rent or the intrinsic value is basically stable, maybe you have a little higher than normal vacancy. Normally, you're, uh, uh, you know, 91% occupied. You know, the economy goes through a recession. You're 86% occupied, so you lose 5% of your income, and someone comes in and offers you an 80% discount to your price, you say, get the hell out of here. But with stocks, people do it all the time. It's mind boggling to me, which is why I love public markets so much more than private markets. Private markets would never entertain these type of prices. It's staggering. Um, but uh, that creates the opportunity for us because uh, you use limited leverage, you know what you own, and you wait for it to play out. So great question. Um, okay, Rick. Richard says, love the content. Slightly concerned about the relatively big correction across a few licks, all with a lower bond yield as one of the catalysts. Hard to call rates and feels a bit like deficit concerns getting prices a bit. If that is the reason for yield to move up past two weeks, then I'm emotionally scared. Hope that is not the case, but nobody can know. So uh, as I said in that interview, with the other two guys, Ali and uh, David and Evan. Um, the macro is useful, but what, what gets me, stocks show up at abnormal prices. And I try to figure out whether those abnormal prices are justified. And I do that by looking at its prospective earnings power. And what I'm seeing with a lot of the interest rate sensitive stocks is that their earnings power 
in a lot of the cases is as good as it was before rates went up dramatically and in some cases even better and yet the prices are down whatever 50 60 70 80 percent when we're buying some of these things um what i can tell you is from experience i can't tell you what's going to cause rates to change but i can tell you that on the basis of how these stocks are acting and the price relative to what they're worth um something's going to change and it's going to change abruptly i can't give you the date i can't give you the day but i can just tell you they're they're priced like the apartment building at 80 percent off because you have uh something at um less than that so i don't know if the front desk is calling me but i'm going to try to ignore that and hope they stop ringing um i'm here at the hotel so uh there we go rick and then um all right i gotta take that real quick okay they stopped all right so let's talk about not pre-recorded here we go we do this stuff live uh ronin bitten ask um from israel would like your opinion on two companies asml and o realty income uh this is interesting o has come up a little bit um okay so asml is semis which is hated right now stock's not come off that much it has a huge moat if you read that book i suggested uh whatever it was called about the semiconductors which was mind-boggling which gave me the idea for intel chip wars i think it was called so asml for me i need bigger pullbacks i'm just going to tell you that right now i'll tell you the company probably looks great uh let's see here growing cash flow growing earnings high return on capital good balance sheet moat, moat business um but i'm more interested you know you had this pullback in last year from 800 to 400. i like those type of margin safeties these 10 percent pullbacks they're just not that interesting to me because i can't make a double off a 10 percent pullback i can make a double off a 50 percent pullback and i can make a triple off a 60 or 70 percent pullback uh but um we're going to try to keep this quick enough to get you guys out of here and um okay cash flow this is o realty they do single tenant standalone commercial properties 50 states uh five tenants they've got dollar general walgreens 7-eleven <clears throat> so this is down for two reasons rates number one and number two uh these dollar stores have had you know been a little bit out of favor the last few weeks so they're kind of getting it from both ends but if i recall this is like could be wrong about this but i think this is like a dividend aristocrat where they've raised their dividend every year for many 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 years um so it's pulled back from 71 to 50. again that's you know I think that's I think that's going to be fine, uh, and it's a high quality business, so you're you're probably okay here. Certainly worth doing more work on. I just like things that pull back a little more, so I can make more for my risk. But I think you're I think you've picked two decent businesses that 
if you can sit through the short-term volatility, you're going to be just fine. Again, all this is opinion, not advice. I don't know your financial situation. Check with your financial advisor. Click on terms on hedgefundtips.com, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Zach, uh, Tom, love your co content. The solar sector is getting punished all year round since the Fed has risen rates. Do rising rates really justify these 80% drops from all-time highs? Love to hear your thoughts on sun power and end phase. End phase we've done. I think I passed on that. It'll probably work. It's just not for me. Uh, e N P H. Yeah. So I mean, the stock went from a buck to three hundred bucks. It's pulled back, you know, fifty percent. You know, these are the things that I say. Hey, I missed it. I mean, let me just take a look at end phase. Uh. Yeah, I mean, it's growing cash flow. I, I For the reasons that I covered uh, last time we did this a couple weeks ago, I'm going to say pass. Sun Power, on the other hand, let's see here. I, I do want to get some type of exposure. I was hoping First Solar would pull back because it's a little better. But I had a reporter call me today about the same thing. And my answer to her was, you know, there's a lot of money and incentives that are going to continue to go to green. The problem with solar is it's still a commodity with declining margins. And no one has emerged like Tesla as the go-to innovator that you have. You know, I don't think people want EVs. I think they want Teslas as, as you know, maybe that'll change, but it hasn't changed yet. So I just don't see that in the solar industry. So I think all of these beaten down solar stocks can work as trades. I don't think they're gonna be great businesses. Um, Sun Power is, you know, starting to regrow revenues, starting to get uh, cash flow positive again. Uh, I'd have to just check. I think their balance sheet is, is garbage. So that one might be a little bit dangerous. Um, but I think there is a pony in the pile in solar for a trade. I would never own them long term because, again, they're commodity businesses. There's no differentiated. Maybe Enphase is probably the differentiated one, but I miss that. So I don't chase. I mean, I'm not chasing up down 50%, but it's up, you know, 300x before that. Um, let's see here on Sun Power. So they got 114 million. They've got eh. I don't know. This has just always been a crappy business. I haven't seen one that has other than maybe First Solar, which uh, the Walt Walton family has a huge stake in, which is why I always like that. And that one hasn't pulled back. And they're all low quality. These are declining margin businesses. So they're just trades. I'm going to say pass. Um, JT asks, I appreciate your thoughts on whether you think banks and other large holders of treasuries are hedging their mark to market exposure more aggressively by shorting the longer ends of the yield curve. If so, do you think this part of what's driving the selling pressure in the 10 years? I always appreciate it. I think, I, I think it doesn't matter. I think the trade is fully baked, crowded, 
and going to reverse. We just don't know when, and we just don't know at what level, but we, I think we, I think it's imminent for the reasons I described uh, in the interview. Don't overthink it. Just know when the trade is crowded, at extreme, and ready to reverse. Um, Norman Bickle, I'm analyzing Amber Crombie and Finch for a potential short position. How do you explain their falling earnings in relation to their free cash flow, which looks great, mostly from secular decrease in CapEx? What's your view on apparel accessory industry as a whole? I want to be in consumer discretionary. I don't ever talk about shorts publicly. Um, I will say that uh, Amber Crombie is growing. Their earnings and cash flow is recovering. Their sales are recovering. I don't know why. I don't remember it being a decent business, but this is not one that I would short. Um, I wouldn't be long it. I don't think it's been a you know great business. I don't know the turnaround story, but uh, Chad asked about XBI. No changes. It's just doing what it's doing until rates change. Um, Jason Zen asks about uh, MPW. All right, so MPW is, I believe, a medical REIT. Um, when rates change, this will change. Let's just take a look. Ooh, this thing has been smoked. This one might be in trouble. This is a smaller play, and I might not be inclined to do this because, you know, you're not betting on Steve Roth with something like this. Um, Medical Property Trust. Okay. Negative EBITDA. Just take a look at the balance sheet here. Um, I think you're in a similar situation that when rates change, this will work as a trade. I don't know if I want to be on such a small business, though, without a moat, because these things can break. Uh, I'd have to know more about management and have to do a lot more work, but I would just go, whenever there's dislocation, the best advice I can give you is find the highest quality in the group uh, that you're dealing with. MPW is not the highest quality. Pick something of a better ilk that if the industry gets destroyed, there's going to be three or four left standing that you can buy at 50% off. And you're going to be much better off than buying the one at 70% off. That may not be left standing. Maybe they have trouble refinancing or something like that. And then you have an issue. So great question. Um, let's see. Jarrett. Simon. Uh, good question, Jason. Simon asks... 
Uh, do you have a look at recent massacre going on with renewable energy stocks, Xterra, Clearway, or Orsted? Um, the only one I would look at is Nextera on the basis of what we were talking about with the utilities. So, and I do think there's going to be some opportunity in utilities. Might be a little early on this one, and there might be other, like, if you look at XLU, uh, what is it, PCG, PG&E, um, Con Ed, what is their ticker? I don't know. Uh, Dominion. Yeah, let's look at Nextera real quick. Earnings are growing, cash flow is growing, revenues are growing. They pay a dividend. I think Nextera is probably going to be okay. I would give it some time to heal here. It's just had a heart attack, but um, this is very similar to 2009 and uh, 2002 sell-offs. So I think that an opportunity is going to present itself in Nextera. I generally like that, and I, and I, for all the reasons that we, that we discussed on the uh, interview. So good question there, Jarrett. Uh, love your podcast suggested to all the people at work. Thank you. By the way, if you find these valuable, the best compliment you could pay, share it with one friend that you like. The more people that watch, the longer we're going to do this for non-clients, uh, and clients alike. Clients will always get this, but for non-clients, you make it grow. I'll keep doing it for you. You keep it to yourself. It's going to be for clients only. So, um, my question is on zoom. Okay, two to three percent position. Um, yeah, this one's tough. I think you're right. Cash flow. Okay, so it peaked up there. Trough. It looks like it's going to recover. Earnings are starting to recover. Uh, let's see. The share count is that why aren't they taking all this cash and buying in stock? That's what I want to start to see from a business like this. If they, if they're growing cash flow and they're growing earnings, buy in the stock. Still trading over 30 times earnings. Um, revenues have been flattish. That's the problem. You can't have a growth multiple without growing the top line. Um, I uh, I think I'm going to stay away. Um, here's a question about China Telecom growing their cloud business. Uh, Zivco, this was a fear, but actually the state-owned enterprises actually did an investment into AliCloud, raised money. I think it was a couple billion. We covered that a few weeks ago from those uh, state-owned enterprises that were feared to be uh, going to take share from AliCloud and instead they became partners and investors. So I think that's a nod from the government uh, and uh, we have no change in view there. 
that's kind of old news, but something we did keep our eye on pretty pretty aggressively. Uh, learned a lot last year. What would be your catalyst for price, oil prices going lower? I don't have a catalyst. I just know that the time to buy oil was in 2020, and we were out of it in uh, uh, after the move. Everyone wanted it last December. It did nothing. I understand all the narratives right now from all the people who didn't want it in 2020. Everyone wants it up here. Uh, it, it sold to you. I mean, um, uh, I, you know, if we got a massive leg down, I would take another look, I believe, in the secular story. But um, there are just so many other things that are down. Why, why mess with this thing that's already had its run? Uh, not for me. Diego, a G. Oh, by the way, we're going to hit record production in the U.S. I think 13.9 million barrels a day, higher than pre-pandemic levels. So, uh, and there's other things with Venezuela, with uh, Iran, and um, Russian production, etc. That uh, you have to keep an eye on. All right, a G. Uh, Nova Nordisk. You're excited about. By the way, for all this excitement about these. Uh, Weight loss drugs, today they're out with this stuff. It paralyzes your stomach. So um, I don't know if it does it for everyone or if it's even true, but I just, you know, I'm old school. I just believe there are no free lunches. Like, you know, if you tell me I can lose weight without exercise and eat whatever the hell I want, I'm going to say, oh, sounds good, but uh, hard pass because uh, either it's going to be a side effect like in the past when they had weight loss drugs where your heart blows up, uh, or now maybe it's your, who knows what it is. Um, uh, I just think that, um, you know, great things come from incremental steps that compound over time, whether that's weight loss or investing or uh, golf or, you know, anything else that you find worthwhile. I don't, I hope this is the answer and I hope Walmart stop, stop selling Oreos because no one craves them anymore because everyone's losing all their weight and they're all super healthy uh, on this drug. But um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hold my breath. I mean, it would be great for society. But this thing's moved up, you know, what, 5x in a couple of years. Uh, could it go higher? Absolutely. Uh, could this thing be the greatest thing since sliced bread? Absolutely. Uh, could be the next, um, you know, whatever it is, penicillin. But um, I think a lot of that's priced. I think more and more comp, even if it's true that it's so amazing, you know, you got Pfizer coming out with a pill pill version and no one's going to stick themselves with needles if they can pop a pill in their mouth and get the same results, assuming there are no side effects. So I think it's going to be crowded. I think you're starting to see it in Lily a little bit and everything else. I I'll leave that to other people. I, I don't want to guess on on that stuff. I want to just deal with durable, sustainable cash flows. I'll let, I'll leave the guessing on the future to other people. There's only one person I know who knows how to do it. That's Ron Barron. Uh, the rest of them usually wind up getting whacked. So, uh, leaving that aside, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. We'll be back in New York, Connecticut next week. And, uh, in the meantime, make it a great one. Bye for now.